Matthew uh, chapter 19, 20. Thank you. Actually, we are in chapter 19. We're going to read the last verse of 19 and up to chapter, uh, or verse one, chapter, verse 16 of chapter 20. So, but I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you've been around kids at all, uh, three words they learn very quickly is, it's not fair. It's not fair. They say it over and over and over again. And even in our society, fairness is a concept, I think, that we Americans are very familiar with. From a very early age, we learn what fairness is all about. And soon afterwards, we learn the words no and mine. But not too long after that, children learn those three words. It's not fair. And we find ourselves echoing our own parents when we say back to our kids, whoever said life was fair. (laughs) Those words come back to haunt us. Still, we have an expectation, I think, that we desire life to be fair. And when someone cheats and gets ahead of us, we feel upset about that. We feel slighted, and we may say it's not fair. Maybe I've been at this company for years, and that young upstart comes in here and gets a promotion while they pass me by. It's not fair. Or maybe I'm a really good parent. I really, really love my children. I sacrifice deeply for them. How come everyone else has perfect kids and mine have all the problems? It's not fair. Or maybe it's I live a good, clean life. No smoking, no drinking try to eat well, take care of myself. And now the doctor says that I have lung cancer. But my sister-in-law has smoked a pack a day for 40 years, and she's just fine. It's not fair. Or how many other examples can we think of of unfairness? You know, in the end, our sense of fairness is almost keen when we feel that we are victims of injustice. Or when we feel someone is treated more favorably than we are for no good reason whatsoever. I want to share with you this morning, God rewards those who do right and God judges those who do wrong. And the Bible says clearly that he has no regard for their individual personalities. He's not a respecter of persons as we may be. And when it comes to the blessings of salvation, God gives to all equally. We're going to find that out today. All who come to the Lord Jesus Christ receive the same salvation. No matter what the circumstances of our coming, no matter how diligent or how faithful our service, it is God's good pleasure to give us the same glorious salvation. Now with that background, I want to look at Matthew 19, verse 30 and follow along as I read the text for us this morning. 19 verse 30 says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard, and going out about the third hour, He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, 
You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Fellow, I I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Today I want us to ponder this tremendous story that Jesus tells. I want us to ponder fairness today in light of God's work in Christ. And again, a deeper understanding of just how unfair or just how fair our God is. Well, let's look at our text. The first thing you're going to see here is that phrase, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And you see it twice. And the reason you see it twice is because it's actually bracketing in the parable. It's, it's starting in 1930 and it ends in 16. And it says everything in between that has to do with that phrase. That proverb. And so we want to look at the proverb, we want to look at the parable, we want to look at the point of the parable, and then the principles. And I don't know if we'll get all through this today. It might become part two. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Depends how fast I talk. (laughs) But it appears in 1930, and it also appears in 2016, that phrase, that proverb, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Well, what is a proverb? A proverb can be defined this way. It's a short statement of wisdom. It's a small little pithy statement that has truth, that has wisdom contained in it. It's a short statement usually of unknown origin. And it expresses wisdom. Now we don't know if the Lord borrowed this from his culture, from his society. We don't know if he made it up. He uses it several times throughout his teachings. He may have coined it himself. We're not clear on that. But the thing is, is he uses this proverb to bring across a point. And when you stop and you read it, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Well, what is he talking about? What first? What last? What does it mean? As you ponder that, as you begin to study that and just have it go over and over in your mind, I'm sure you'll come to the same conclusion I did. 
that proverb simply means that everyone is the same. Everyone is the same. Because if the first become last and the last become first, then the first become last who became first. And then the last who were already last became first. It just goes round and round. It's like having a race. If you had a race and everybody started and they all crossed the finish line at the exact point in time, everybody finished a winner. There's no second place. The last are first and the first are last. And that's the intent of the parable. And it becomes very obvious in the context. And the parable of our Lord opens that up to us. So we see the proverb. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Well, let's look at the parable. Verse 1. After stating the proverb in, in verse 30, look at verse 1 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, remember, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. When, when Jesus was on earth, he had to teach in such a way that he had to look around and he had to grab illustrations and examples from their culture. But he's teaching not an earthly lesson, he's teaching a spiritual lesson. We're not talking about things on the earth. We're talking about things in the sphere where God rules through grace. We're talking about things in the kingdom of God. We're talking about a salvation economy here. The sphere of God's domain. The place where Christ rules and reigns. So don't get sidetracked because he's telling an earthly story. He's not necessarily coming across with that just for the earthly meaning. He wants us to get a deeper meaning, a spiritual meaning from that. That's what a parable is. We're in the spiritual dimension. We're in God's world now. And in order for us to understand that dimension, we really have to have some earthly illustrations, you might say, that he shows us because we're so earthly minded. <laughs> and so the Lord uses these common thing here, a vineyard and workers, to relate to the people he's teaching. And so he begins by introducing us to a man. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. In the Greek, that word is oikodespotis, which means basically oikos, house, despot, ruler. is a ruler of a house. He must have had a rather large estate. And he is the owner because verse 15 clarifies that because he answers the man. He says, well, isn't it right for me to do what I want with what is mine? So he owns this property. And so the money that he paid the laborers was his own because he was the owner. So here is a man who owns a large estate and he has a vineyard on his estate and it tells us that he went out early in the morning. In their culture, that would be their, their workday started at 6 a.m. It ended at 6 p.m., 12-hour workday. So he went out before that, probably 5-ish, 5.30. He had to get workers. And so early in the morning, he went into the village, he went into the town to hire some laborers to come and work in his vineyard. Modern-day example of that is going down to Home Depot. You see the guys down there standing around work. Well, they want to work, right? Now, you can debate whether it's wrong or right to hire those people. That's your own prerogative. 
But that's a picture of what's going on here. Now, this is very, this imagery that Jesus is using is very common to their culture. It's a very real one. They lived in a land where there was not only uh, flat plains that contained grain and all that, but there was also hills, and on the hills they had vineyards. They still have them over there to this day. And they put in a lot of work in cultivating those vineyards and those grapes because they were on the hill. They had to bring up soil from the valley and, and they had to terrace the hillside and plant the vineyards. And we can maybe imagine it. It's, it's maybe in the fall here. They would plant these things in the springtime and they would nurture them through the summer. And in the fall, around this time, September, they would begin to have a harvest of grapes. In that time, as you, if you've ever been on a farm around harvest time, it's not a time to sit around idle. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, people have to work. They have to get the crops in. I went out to my brother's farm one time when he was baling hay. I lasted about two days. Hard work. Sun up to sun down. I mean, it's, it's very hard work. And they were familiar with this setting. And he's describing a, a vineyard here. And it's, it's harvest time. And this landowner needs to get the grapes in before the rains come and destroy his crop. Now, he'd have a large number of people helping him do this, obviously. He shows up before 6 a.m. and he goes out and he finds these laborers. Now, in their society, they had different classes, kind of a people, people who owned the land and people who worked for people who owned the land. And the people who worked for the people who owned the land were even broken up into further classes. You had people who were employed full-time, the caretakers, the people who cooked, the people who maybe watched the children and, and oversaw the everyday uh, going, goings-on in the home. But then you also had people that were way down on the economic ladder, who would be hired for a day if there was a special project. Maybe they would be hired for a couple days. Well, the harvest was a time when they would go outside of their regular household of employees and they would find somebody else because they needed the hands on deck to bring in the harvest. And these day laborers were kind of the bottom of society. They didn't have a full-time job. They depended on whatever they got that day. As a matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, God's Word gives us instruction on how these people should be treated. Just to show us how caring and loving God is, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, it says this, The wages of the hired servant, that's the guy we're talking about, the guy that's just hired for a day, shall not remain with you all night until morning. And you say, well, why is that? Because these guys didn't have money to buy food. That's why they were in town. That's why they were standing around waiting for somebody to hire them. And when someone hired them, it wouldn't be fair to make them work all day because they probably hadn't eaten in a couple days to work all day and then say, hey, I'll pay you Friday. <laughs> that didn't, couldn't go on. And so God's word included them. And he said, you know what? If you hire these people, you have to, at the end of the day, settle the account with them so they can go buy their family food. It wouldn't be fair to them to make them work if they're not a regular employee and then expect to get paid a week later. I always hated that when I got a new job. And you know, you're pretty much broke when you get a new job to some degree because that's why you're looking for a job, right? 
and you get this job, and you know, the first thing on my mind is, when's that paycheck coming? And inevitably, well, you know, we hold the check for two weeks, and it's just, ah. Oh. And you're working that whole two weeks, and you, nothing. You have nothing to show for it. So frustrating. Well, God would not allow that to happen with these people who are way down on the economic scale. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 15, he says this, You shall give him his hire on the day he earns it, before the sun goes down, for he is poor, and he sets his heart on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord, and it be sin in you. Isn't it wonderful how God takes care of all these I mean, what we would look at is almost minutia. But that's the concern that God has for his people. So these people are on the bottom rung of the ladder economically. And the Lord said, you know what? When they work, they need to be paid the same day because they need the food. And so here's this scene in this Jewish villages, village where these workers would come, these day laborers, and they'd gather around and they'd gather early in the morning and they'd wait for somebody to come along and say, hey, I want you to come with me and work for me. Well, look at verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. You say, well, is that a lot of money? Yes, that was a very honorable wage. That was the standard pay for a soldier, to give you an idea. That was the standard pay for a respected employee of the household. It was generally accepted as a wage for a a good day's work. It was a fair wage. This guy wasn't down there trying to get something for nothing. It breaks my heart sometimes. You, You see these people out there willing to work and people take advantage of them. That's not the Christian thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. Well, these men agreed, it says, to work for a fair wage, and they went to work for that amount. You work for me, 12 hours, I'll give you a denarius. Okay, let's, let's hit it. Look at verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he saw all others. So if the day begins at 6 a.m., this is 9 o'clock in the morning. He takes the workers to the vineyard, gets them started. He goes back to the town to find some more workers three hours later. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Notice he doesn't say what he's going to pay him. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. And he must have been an upright man in the community. They probably knew who he was. He was probably known as a fair man, probably known as a reasonable man. They didn't say, oh, no, wait, 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 we've got to work out the details first. No, they, they were willing to trust this individual. So he goes back at 9 o'clock, and he finds these people. And these people, you know, you you read that there, that they were standing idle. It kind of gives us the impression that they were lazy. That's not the case. They were willing to work. They just weren't chosen the first hour. These people were willing to work, or they wouldn't be out there. Do you understand this? That's not a a bad statement about the workers. They, they had it in their heart to work. That's why they were in the marketplace. And so he comes back and he sees these men standing around and they wanted to work. And so he says, hey, I'll put you to work. You almost get the feeling that it wasn't so much that he needed all the workers. You almost get the feeling that maybe he's a little compassionate to their plight, to their need because they have a great need. And if they don't work, 
they won't eat. And he's probably looking at these men thinking, well, they probably have families, they probably have wives. And so he finds them and he sends them into the field to work. But he doesn't negotiate any price with them. He says, I'll pay you what is right. They trusted him. Then it says in verse 5, So they went, and going out again about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour. And he goes on there, and he says he did the same. He went back to the marketplace over and over again. And you even come to the point where it's at the 11th hour. What's that mean? It's 5 o'clock, folks. Quitting time, 6 o'clock. And this master is back in the town and he's looking around. He's all, oh, you still got some guys standing here. And he says, about the 11th hour, verse 6, he went out and he found others still standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one was, has hired us. It's not that we don't want to work, it's just nobody's hired us. And he said to them, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So this last group gets hired on with one hour left. They'd been waiting all day for someone to hire them. They're probably hopeless They're probably depressed. They're probably wondering how they're going to go home and tell their wife they don't have any money. They can't feed their kids because nobody's hired us. It's not that they didn't want to work. It's just that nobody hired them for whatever reason. Maybe they were older. Maybe they weren't as strong. Maybe they're the weaker ones. We don't know. I want to share with you this morning a different, this story, the same story, But I want to share it from a different perspective. It's getting dark, and nervously she paces in her modest home. She's worried. Nervously she sweeps the dirt floor from one side to the next. She stares out into the darkness. It's late. She begins to pray, Oh God, oh God, where's my Joseph? Where is he, Lord? It's getting late, and I don't think he found any work today. The reason I know that is because I went into the marketplace later in the afternoon, and I saw him still standing there late in the afternoon. Nobody hired him. But Lord, where is he now? It's dark out. Has something happened to him? Maybe he's just too ashamed come home again empty-handed her prayer is broken by a tug on her dress it's her five-year-old daughter Elizabeth little Elizabeth asks mama where's daddy why has daddy not come home yet is he bringing us something to eat mama I'm hungry and with that the door burst open And he says, hello, Elizabeth, hello, Rebecca. Prepare the table. We have a feast. Look, I have bread, I have cheese, I have figs. And for the two women I love most in my life, I have a little bit of honey. Joseph, where did you get all this? I know you didn't work. 
because I went by later in the afternoon in the marketplace and I saw you standing there late in the day. He turned to her and he said, the most amazing, the most marvelous thing happened, Elizabeth, to me today. I was standing in the marketplace waiting for someone to hire me all day. The day was getting late and many had already gone home and given up. Others had gone to work and just a few of us were there standing. So hot and sweaty, tired, standing there all day. But I knew I just couldn't come home empty-handed again. I couldn't stand another night just laying in bed when sleep would not come. When the growling of my stomach could not drown out the words of my daughter, Daddy, I'm hungry. I was almost ready to give up. When around the 11th hour, the most unusual thing happened. A fellow came up and yelled to us and asked us why we weren't working. And we said, well, no one has hired us. And he said, I'll hire you. Come on. Work. And it was late in the day, but a few pennies was better than nothing, I thought. So I went and worked in the guy's vineyard. And there were people there who had been working a long time. They'd been working all day. You could tell because they were hot and tired and dusty, sweaty. Elizabeth, we only worked for one hour. And the landowner gathered us together to pay us. And would you believe he paid us first? The ones who had worked only one hour. Not those who had worked three hours or six hours or nine hours or twelve hours. And would you believe it that he gave us the same wages for the entire day? We worked one single hour. And we were paid for an entire day. I was so happy. I was joyous. I ran into the marketplace and bought all this food for us to eat tonight. Doesn't it look good? Isn't it wonderful? We're going to have a feast tonight. But as I was in the marketplace, I did hear some of the workers who had worked longer than I. And they were grumbling. They were really just downright mad. I didn't really say anything. I just came home because I couldn't wait to get home and spread this feast before your eyes. Let us gather around the table and thank God for his favor that he has bestowed on us. Joseph, may I ask a question? Sure, honey. I'm curious. Why are there just three loaves instead of the customary four loaves of bread? And are my eyes deceiving me? Or it looks like someone actually cut that cheese in half. Well, you're right. And I hope it's okay. But on the way home... I thought of the widow Sarah and I stopped by her house and gave her some of the bread and cheese. And wiping the moisture from her eyes, Rebecca said, Oh, my dear Joseph, my kind and generous Joseph, you know that it is more than all right. Let's bow and thank God. See, the same story from a different perspective. Same story, but a different perspective. Look at verse 8. 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up until the first. That's the way it was to be done in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, that you were to pay these, these workers at the end of the day. You called them together, and you paid them together. But it's interesting that here we see where the, this parable ties in with our proverb, the last up to the first. All of a sudden, you see how it all mixes together. The ones who came to work last were paid. And the first ones that came to work first were paid last. So it's obviously that the proverb is saying that and it, it illustrates that very statement. So they all got in line to be paid. And the guys out in front had worked only one hour. And the guys at the end of the line had worked 12. And they got a denarius. That's a whole day's wage. It's a generous wage. It's not, it's not a ripoff. It's a, it's a fair wage. Well, can you imagine, as they're going through this line, they see the, the, the guys who were hired last, first in the line, and the guys at the end of the line, and everybody in between, and they're watching this play out in front of their eyes, and they're thinking, this is a little odd, but whatever. At least we're getting paid. At least we can go buy our family the food. But they see the, the master pay the, the guys that came late, the 11th hour, a denarius. And you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, man, this guy's generous. Do you know what that means? He's been here one hour. He got a denarius. We've been here 12 hours. We're going to get 12 days wages for 12 hours. This is going to be good. And you can see the guys lining up, and they're handing out their thing, and they get the denarius, and the first ones leave. And then the second group comes. What do they get? They get a denarius and the third, and the fourth. And finally, verse 10, it says, Now when those who were hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. You might be sitting there this morning and saying, you know what, that's just downright unfair. That's not right. And in human terms, if you're talking about employment, the way we do things, you're right. But what did he promise to give them? He promised to give them a denarius. Did they think that that was a fair wage? Obviously, they accepted it. They said, sure, that's no problem about that. It wasn't a question of fairness, beloved. It wasn't a question of fairness. Look at what happens in verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled. They murmured. It's an onomatopoeic word in the original language. Like, they're just grumbling. They're upset. They griped and they take their stand before this man who's paying them and they're not going to leave. They're still holding out their hand. Okay, you gave me one. You gave them one. I worked 12 hours. They only worked one. Come on, pay up. And they start to grumble against 
the owner. Do you know that grumbling comes from two things? First of all, grumbling comes when we overestimate our own importance. When we think that we're more important than the next guy. But grumbling also comes when we underestimate the grace of God. We overestimate our own importance. We underestimate the grace of God. And so look at what they say. Verse 12. Hey, wait a minute. The last worked only one hour and you gave them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. I mean, they're really playing this thing up. That word scorching heat kind of is a, is a word for burner. And it has the idea of this, this wind that just kicks up sometimes over there and it parches your lips and it cracks your skin. It's a miserable time to work. And they're really dramatizing this whole thing, hoping to maybe ink out a couple more denarii out of this guy. We've been out here all day. Well, this is what you agreed to. But he replied, verse 13, to one of them. Some translations say friend. That should be fellow. It's kind of a neutral term. He's not endearing this man. Fellow, I, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do that? With what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, it's not an issue of fairness. He paid him exactly what he said he was going to pay, and the guy agreed to it. If he wants to be more generous to other people... Who is this man to tell him he can't do that? It's his money. He's the owner. See, it's not an issue of fairness. It's an issue of jealousy. That's why he says, do you begrudge my generosity? Some translations use the word, do you get the evil eye? That's what that means. You know, it, it's kind of like the, the folks that work all their life and, you know, you're, you're, you're laboring day in and day out, weeks on end, years on end to just have some substance for your retirement. And your buddy who's just blown everything he's ever had, no stewardship whatsoever, and his aunt passes away and leaves him a couple millions dollars, million dollars, and you're just going, this is not fair. See, it wasn't that he didn't get a fair wage. He did. He agreed to it. They got a very fair wage, a generous wage by the standard of the day. See, it's, the point is, is that they couldn't stand anybody else getting the same thing without working as hard as they did. That's the point. Instead of saying to themselves, wow, isn't that wonderful? He's so generous to those who have the same need we have. Even though they weren't able to put in a full day's work, he paid them the same. I bet you that's a blessing to them. Isn't it wonderful that they had to wait all day to have their needs met? At least we we got hired early and we could count on this, but they, they were waiting all day in that hot sun to be hired. 
Isn't it neat that our, our boss was gracious to them? See, that's the, the thankful heart. Well, that's the parable. And he says, I have the right to give whatever I want. Are you going to be jealous if I give it? And then he repeats the proverb down there in verse 16, so the last will be first and the first shall be last. Some manuscripts include there that phrase, many are called and few are chosen. I believe it's taken out of Matthew 22, 14, so we're going to cover it when we get to Matthew 22, 14. I don't think it's actually in this text, but it's fine. We'll cover it when we get there. I heard a story one time about that, that little phrase at the end there. Many are called, but few are chosen. There was a dad who was taking his kid to Sunday school, and he didn't go to church. He didn't go to anything. He just wanted his kid to go. And uh, his little boy went to church and dropped him off, and he picked him up, and he said, well, what did uh, you learn today, Sonny? What did the preacher talk about? And the boy kind of picked up on his dad's apathetic concern for church and just said, ah, I'm not really sure, I don't know. And the dad kind of prodded him, come on, well, what did he teach? He must have taught something. Eh, it, was, it was a parable about cold people or something. His dad said, cold people? Yeah, cold people. And the boy explained, well, the preacher, he kept on saying, many are cold and a few are frozen. Well, what's the point of this? What's the point? We see the proverb. We see the the parable. What's the point? How do we interpret this proverb? Well, look at verse 1. It's very clear. The man is God. He's the householder. He's a picture of God. The vineyard is the kingdom. It's the sphere of God's rule. It's the, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of salvation. The laborers are those who come into salvation. Those who come into the kingdom, those who come to serve the king. The day, the day basically is illustrative of a lifetime of work. The evening is eternity. The denarius or the wage is eternal life. You could even say the steward is Jesus Christ. So what's it saying? What does this mean? It means that no matter how long you worked in the kingdom, no matter how hard or how easy your circumstances were, no matter how difficult the task, when you get to the end, you're all going to receive the same eternal life. Isn't that a great truth? That's really what it's teaching. Some people serve Christ their whole life. Some people serve Christ just a short time in their life. I mean, can you imagine how these guys felt? They've been working all day in the hot sun. And these guys show up at 5 o'clock an hour before when the sun's going down and the breeze is coming up and they've got to work an hour in those conditions. And they get the same amount. That's how it is in the kingdom. That's how it is. We all get the same. We all enter into the same eternal life. We all inherit the same glories in heaven. That's really what the Lord is saying here. No matter how easy or how hard you have it in life, no matter how long or how short your service of the Lord is, 
Think of it this way. The penitent thief will inherit the same glories of eternity that are going to belong to the apostles. Here was Peter, who served with the Lord. He was crucified upside down, martyred for the cause of Christ. And then you have the thief on the cross who cries out in his last moments of life and is saved. And he receives the same eternal glory, blessings, that Peter did. It may sound unfair. It may sound, this isn't right. But I'm here to tell you, it's more than any of us deserve. It's more than any of them deserved in the story. It's God's good pleasure to give them the fullness of what they needed. So those who come to Christ early in life will receive the same eternal life that those who come to Christ late in life receive. Those who spend their life in an easy place, maybe not serving Christ with a great amount of toil or effort, will receive the same eternal life that a person will receive who has served Christ at the cost of all that he owns and all that he ever has, even a martyr's death. In our economy, that doesn't make sense. But you have to understand, to begin with, it's all according to grace of the one who gives anyway, right? So the benefits of the kingdom are the same for everybody. What that says to me is that we're not trying to earn our way in. The kingdom is not a merit system, beloved. Heaven is not a merit system. It's not how many good works you do and then maybe God will let you into his heaven. That's not how it works. Eternity is not based on merit. It's based on grace. It's based on God's sovereign choice, on God's sovereign love that he puts upon you. A man and pastor in Florida named Rush Witt, he has a website called My Name is Rush, and he wrote this little uh, blog. Remember, he's in Florida in the Case and the Anthony case, right? He wrote this a couple days after the verdict came down, and I thought it's a great picture and lesson for us as believers. He writes, Can you believe the jury found her not guilty? The case which I followed only close enough to get the general picture seemed open and shut. But in the land of freedom, an acquittal only requires a shadow of doubt. Since yesterday, much of the country and even the world is outraged. The TV and computer screen is covered with people pressing their faces close to the camera lens, seeing with, seething with disgust. Justice for Kaylee! Wrong verdict! How could they? And from my seat, it only appears that justice might have missed. The verdict was wrong. And earthly justice was probably not done. There's nothing we can do to change that now. The gavel has fallen and the case is closed. But there's some other business yet to be done. Since yesterday, the resounding response from Christians and non-Christians has been one version or another of, well, even though the court got it wrong, God won't. She'll get justice one day. And you know what? That may be true as well. However, this is a wonderful opportunity for an investigation of the gospel. If I'm honest, I must admit, when I see earthly injustice 
a cry for eternal consequences is always on the tip of my tongue. But should it be? What if she doesn't get justice in eternity? What if she gets grace? Would that be a good thing? As Christians, it seems out of place with our confession to chant for wrath. By virtue of the gospel, it is true of us Christians that we have committed outrageous crimes before God and men. We have been pardoned by divine grace. We have not been treated as our sins deserve. In Christ, we can now do nothing to be more accepted by God. And we can do nothing to be less accepted by God. Unexpected mercy and scandalous grace. This is the essence of good news. Now think of Casey Anthony. Allegations of outrageous crimes against God and man. Yet our natural heart cry seems to be justice, not mercy. What if God chooses to show her grace? What if God chooses to grant her repentance? What if God chooses to justify her fully on the merit of Jesus Christ? Then one day, she will see her daughter in the new heavens and the new earth without discord. What if God did this? Would we rejoice? Would we be outraged? Would we think it's great that she's redeemed, but she still has to pay for her crimes? Beloved, that's not the gospel. The good news is, in part, that God will never punish those he redeems for their outrageous crimes. He will love them and keep them and change them. We want that for ourselves, don't we? But what happens when someone murders a toddler, ditches the body, and gets away with it? If we are not willing to face the possibility of God's full and eternal pardon for Casey Anthony without any retribution, we need to reconsider our beliefs about the gospel. Let us not underestimate the scandalous nature of the good news. In light of Casey Anthony's acquittal, he goes on, we have a providential opportunity to reconsider just how good the good news is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11 to says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 says this, Some, such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. See, that's what this parable is saying, because God is a God of grace. And it's all grace anyway. It's a wonderful truth. You stop and you think of the context that leads to this parable. Remember, a couple weeks ago we were looking at the rich young man who was basically told by the Lord in order to follow him, he had to sacrifice everything he had. Couldn't do it. Couldn't give it up. And then following that, Peter goes to him and says, hey, we, we left everything, Lord. What do we get? They had their thoughts on other things. 
They thought Jesus was bringing the kingdom here and now, and they were going to have a big part of it. And then eventually, a little later on in the text, chapter 20, John and James actually get their mom to go to Jesus and say, hey, can, can, can my son sit on your right and your left? They're totally off the mark. See, this is who Jesus is talking to. This is who Jesus is teaching. This is after he's foretold his death. They don't get it. They just don't get it. Even after he's risen from the dead, they say, is, now, is, is now the kingdom coming? Is now the, when we're going to be part of this big deal that we've been working on for three years? We left everything. What are we going to get? At the end of chapter 20, they run into a bunch, two blind guys. And they're crying out for the mercy of God. And the crowd's like, hey, you know, hush, man, what are you doing? Disturbing us over here. These were the, the downtrodden, the blind. They, nobody had any use for these people. But Jesus stopped and he healed them. And all of a sudden, they become part of the group. And the disciples are looking at the blind guys and they're going, wait a minute, we've been here three years. These guys just happened to come in here at the last hour. Surely they're not on the same plane as us. I mean, we're the apostles. He's teaching them this lesson because they were self-centered. Sometimes we can be the same way, beloved. We look around and we think we're not as bad as other people. We begin to judge. We begin to cast judgment on people. It's human to do that, but it's definitely not right. You know, you wonder, when we get to heaven one day, the Bible clearly says that in my Father's house are many rooms. Somehow, we've taken that verse and we've warped it into, yeah, I'm going to have a, a nice estate on the back 40, man. You know, 18 holes of golf. And maybe if you're real nice to me now, I'll let you come over and play a couple rounds when we're up there. Because I know whatever he's working on at my house is, no, it's not my house. We're all going to be in the Father's house. See, we lose our perspective. We're all going to be saved by the grace of God. We're all going to inherit the same salvation. It doesn't matter if you're the axe murderer that, that, that got saved your last second before they injected your veins and, and carried out punishment, or if you've been somebody who was saved from the time of six years old and you've grown up and you've served the Lord all your life. We're all going to be the same when we come to the glorious place in heaven. Romans 8.17 says, We're all heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I mean, stop and think about it. You can't get any better than perfect. Heaven is a perfect place. Heaven is in the presence of God. Now, I don't understand quite how all the reward system works out and all that because the Bible does say that we do receive rewards. But I don't know how you can improve on a perfect place. 
man, as long as I'm in heaven, I don't care if I got any rewards or not. Because you're in the presence of your Savior. God is clear, beloved, that he, he desires us to come to him. The Bible says there's no distinction. There's no male nor female, nor rich nor poor, Jew, Greek. doesn't matter whether you come early, late. doesn't matter your gender, how old you are. None of that matters. What matters is are you willing to trust him for salvation? Are you willing to put your faith and trust in a gracious, loving God and say, yeah, I need to be saved too? Look at these principles quickly and we'll close with this. First principle, God initiates salvation sovereignly. Sovereignly. The householder, it says, went out to find the laborers and brought them into the vineyard. He comes into the marketplace to seek those who would come and to serve in his kingdom. God does the seeking. God also does the saving. And we need to continue to have faith in that. Maybe we've been praying for people to be saved for years, and they just haven't been saved yet. You know what? That's God's deal. That's not your deal. You continue to share with them the gospel. You continue to live a Christian life before them, and you pray that God would touch their heart. Secondly, second principle, God establishes the terms, just like the householder did here. He told him he'd give him a denarius for a day's work, and that's what he did. They came on those terms. You have to come to God on His terms. You can't wiggle your way into the kingdom some other way. See, that was the problem with the rich young ruler. He wouldn't play by God's terms. He said, no, I can't do that. I've done everything else, but I'm not just going to leave all my riches. Are you crazy? Christ set the price and He wouldn't pay it. And these poor folks in the marketplace, they didn't have anywhere else to go. They couldn't sit there and barter with this man who was going to hire them. They were willing to take whatever, whatever came by. They were at the end of the rope. Thirdly, God continues to call men into his kingdom. That's why this is a, a, a time span kind of a thing. It starts at 6 in the morning and it goes right up until the 5th hour or the 12th, 11th hour at 5 o'clock. He's still hiring workers. What's that show us? God is still bringing people into the kingdom. John chapter 9, verse 4 says, We have to work while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. God is calling men, women, children to Himself. Redemption goes on until the judgment comes. Fourth principle is that God is redeeming those who are willing. God is redeeming those who are willing to bend their knee to the Savior. See, the men that were gathering in that marketplace, they were gathered there looking for work. They weren't home, sitting on the couch, going, gee, nobody will hire me. No, they got up and they moved to the marketplace where they could be hired. They were willing to work. They weren't self-sufficient. They were not rich. They were dependent on someone else to meet their needs. They were not satisfied. They were poor, meek, beggars. And they had to depend on the master and what they could get from him. You have to come to the end of yourself to be saved. 
The fifth principle here, God is compassionate to those who have no resources. Isn't that beautiful? God is compassionate to those who have no resources. He reaches out to those who recognize their own need. Why are you idle? Well, nobody's hired us. I'll hire you. Sixthly, I, all who come into the vineyard work or into the vineyard worked. They come. Even in the last hour, they worked. Maybe just an hour, but they worked. When Christ saves you, he has a plan, a purpose for you. Your faith is known by your what? By your works. Also, God has the sovereign and ability to keep his promise. God said to the first group, I'll pay you a denarius, and that's exactly what he did. That's a wonderful truth. That God has the ability within himself to keep his promises. God is not a liar. He said it and he'll give it to you. He always gives what he promises. And he always gives more than we deserve. Ninthly, humility is the only right attitude. They had a sense of unworthiness. They had a sense of brokenness. Jesus had to bring this out in other stories, other parables. You think of the, the uh, prodigal son. That whole story, that's very illustrative of this whole, this whole parable. But the final principle, I think, is this. That we all receive from God. That what we receive... What we receive from God is a matter of His grace. It's undeserved blessing, beloved. There's no works involved here. The sovereign grace dispenses to all who come into His vineyard, no matter how they work, no matter how short they work or how long they work or how hard or how easy, whatever. He dispenses the same eternal life to all of them. The equalizer is grace. Because where you have sin, grace covers it. And where sin abounds, the Bible says what? Grace abounds more. So grace just keeps erasing so everyone can come out at the same point to inherit the same eternal life. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians when he says that God who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our sins, down there in the marketplace without any resources, he made us alive together in Christ by grace through faith for the purpose that he might show unto us the glories of his kindness through all eternity. Say, is God fair or not fair? You know what? He is unfair. God definitely is unfair. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. You might look at the sinner over there and want God to go punish him or her. You might expect that a fair and just God would mete out due punishments to those people. If he doesn't, it's not fair. But when you look at your own life, well, I want the favor of God. I want the grace of God. 
But God is fair in the, also in the fact that he demonstrates his justice through Christ who bears the wages of sin for all men. God's divine wrath is meted out. But it's focused and channeled through his cross, through his son. That's why Christ died, not us. He satisfies his own demands himself. So now in Christ, we rightly claim a place in God's kingdom. We claim the inheritance as sons. We have, by Christ's work, an earned credit with God. Not because we did anything, but because his work on the cross, he perfectly lived his life, and we get credit for that. Amazing. Like the workers who slaved all day in the fields, and the latter latecomers benefit from their efforts. We benefit from the work of Christ. I just thank God that he does provide that way of salvation through his son. Because without it, we would all be lost. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I don't know necessarily how this message has fallen upon the hearts here. I know it's affected me. And my own response is one of thankfulness. Lord, when I look at my own life, I know that there are a lot of people that are a lot more faithful than I am, that work a lot harder than I ever have, longer under greater stress, And I thank God that somehow he has allowed me to receive the same inheritance. I'm sure there are others who've worked less, fewer years with less diligence. And I thank God that his grace is poured upon them. And they will be able to give him glory one day for his grace on their lives. So it's a time of thanks. It's a time of praising the grace of God. Whether you're in or out of the kingdom, a recipient of that grace, or you're still standing in the marketplace rejecting the offers, maybe it's five o'clock in your life. Maybe he's calling you to his vineyard. Don't be like the rich young ruler. Come to him on his terms. Don't stand outside the place of blessing. Never able to know his great grace. Never able to receive the eternal gift of life. Come to him. He welcomes you. His grace is sufficient for you. Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning. I pray that if anyone here has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that, Lord, somehow this might be the day that you allow them to understand their need of a Savior. Allow them to cry out to you in a heartfelt prayer. Be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. Save me. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.